Amen. Amen. Uh, okay. My name is Grace, and I'm going to be reading 1 Corinthians 13 from the Message Translation. So, here we go. If I speak with human eloquence in angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the state to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope swervingly, love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. Thank you, Grace. Appreciate that reading. I've done a lot of weddings uh, in my life, and uh, that passage is read more than any other passage, right, at weddings. That's probably not surprising to you. And uh, when um, Josiah asked me to talk about relationships, and I'll focus um, on relationships as it relates to marriage primarily, uh, I thought of that passage, and even though we read it, if you were here this morning in uh, the morning worship, I thought it was appropriate to read it again. Because it's a, the heart of what God means when he says, I want you to be in relationship with others. It's to love others unconditionally and to love them well. And in that, loving the other, you're shaped yourself. And that's the title of the talk tonight, um, Being Shaped by the Other. So, <clears throat> I've got a cold, so hang with me here. I might have to be drinking some. Uh, but it's just water. So. <laughs> Here's a, a dramatic statement I want to make at the outset. There are two things, more than anything else, two things that are going to shape your character. One is pain, and two is relationships. And sometimes those are one and the same, right? <laughs> it seems like they come together. But if you do your... Uh, utmost all the time to avoid any kind of pain you're not going to be a very well-developed or strong individual right you know that but still we try to avoid pain it's just our instinct and if 
in a similar way you try to avoid relationships, you're going to be impoverished, really impoverished. Relationships are annoying, they drive us crazy, they make us angry, they make us jealous, they do all kinds of things, but without them you'll never be shaped in the way that God wants you to be shaped. So you better be in them, right? That's the point. You better be in them. Now, of course, not everybody is going to be in a relationship called marriage. I understand that. Matter of fact, some people are called to celibacy. Paul makes that clear. Some of you uh, may be celibate the rest of your life, and you don't feel like you're called to it. It's just your lot in life. And I understand that. That will happen for some as well. But given the fact that I'm talking about relationships, it seems, at least for me tonight, that I, I don't want to disconnect them from marriage. As a matter of fact, especially for you guys at this age, I want to say something about relationships that leads us to thinking about marriage and the way in which it shapes us. So there you go, there's the overview. <clears throat> First thing is this, in the beginning, right? So if I'm going to ask you what's the first part of the book of Genesis, you're probably going to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And you're going to find out, if you don't already know, which I'm sure you do, that in the beginning God also makes relationships. This, this story in the book of Genesis about our early beginnings, uh, God tells this story about a man named Adam. And the man named Adam is alone. And God decides to make him a helpmate, namely Eve. And when Eve is made in this narrative, uh, she comes to Adam. And Adam is overwhelmed. He's delighted. And he says, among other things, Wow, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is the same as me, except different. And he names her a woman right in the narrative. Why? To distinguish uh, two things. One, sameness, and two, difference. And sameness and difference are the two distinguishing characteristics in every relationship. Not just marriage, not just male and female, but especially marriage, and especially male and female. There's sameness and there's difference. And in the sameness and in the difference, when you invest in the life of the other and allow the other to invest in your life, uh, you're shaped or changed by that other person. So the primary uh, point of the passage relates to Adam and Eve, right? But it also relates to relationships in a general way. Because if you take a look at the garden story, you'll notice that there's a triad of relationships going on. Three. God, us, and the other. Or, to put it in terms of uh, the characters in the story, God, Adam, and Eve. Or, to put it another way, God said, get, get this, is, is this weird or what? God said, a relationship with Adam is not enough for him or for me. How about that? God said, Adam needs me, and Adam needs other. That was an original design. Now you might spend a lot of time trying to avoid pain. You might spend some time trying to avoid relationships. Pain was not part of the original story. 
but relationships were. So whatever you do, don't pull into your cocoon and try to avoid relationships and be on your own and grow on your own. It won't work. You'll be a very impoverished individual in terms of your character and your spiritual development. That's what the other is for. We see that very early on in uh, the Bible. A uh, second point I want to make about relationships is what I'll just call preparation. And here I'm speaking as it relates to relationships that lead to marriage. There's some things over the years, and it's been 34 in, in June. Uh, glad my wife's not here. I had to think about that. 34 years that we've been um, married. Um, and we, we've never loved each other perfectly, but we've always loved each other completely. Um, and I'm happy I can say that. Um, if we'd have loved each other perfectly, we'd have been okay without each other. <laughs> What's the point? But if we'd loved each other completely, then we would have been perfected through the other. Right? That's relationship. So, what prepares you... Um, Four relationships. In this case, I am in particular thinking about marriage. One thing that prepares you uh, for relationships uh, that you call a relationship that you call marriage is family. Um, your family shapes you uh, dramatically. You know that, right? I mean, you know it without doing any psychology. But when you do psychology, you really realize it, and you start to study the dynamics behind it all. What you are is in large part due to your upbringing. What you are is shaped by your siblings. What you are has something to do with your birth order. What you are has something to do with the environment that your parents were able or chose to live in. What you are has something to do with your relationship with your mother and your father, even if you come from a divided home. You have been shaped already indelibly by your family. But here's what I want to say. It's not too late to change that. Especially for you guys. Because sometimes your family has shaped you in ways that you preferred they not shape you, right? Sometimes your relationship with your family has been, well, torrential. It's just been awful. Sometimes your relationship with your family has been absolutely distant. Other times your relationship with your family is like the helicopter mom that would never leave you alone. Right? You know those stories. They've shaped you. And they've shaped you in both positive and negative ways. But at your age, especially, you have an opportunity to do a self-assessment and look back at it. Right? You're, you're from it, you're away from it now. And you look back at it and you ask yourself, how did they shape me? In what ways did they shape me? And in what ways do I want to be transformed in a direction in which they didn't shape me? Right? What attributes do I want to possess that for whatever reason in my relationship with my family, I didn't seem to grow in? Now, I don't know what those relationships were like and I don't know what attributes you now possess that were given to you by the dynamics of your family relationship. But I'll tell you this, <clears throat> the only part of your family story that you can change is yours. My mother's 75, um, lost my dad five years ago. 
and I moved her up here to Bloomington. Love my mom to death, and she drives me crazy. And I know I drive her crazy. She'd be too loyal to tell anybody that, but I, I know it's true. And one thing that I have decided long ago is that whatever annoys me about my mother is two things. One, it's something of me. That's why I'm annoyed by it. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing, I realize at 75, I'm not going to change her at all. My relationship is entirely different with my mother at 75 as a widow than it was when I was 20 and she was probably 40. I mean, she had me when she was 19, I think. It's different now. But there's ways in which my relationship with my mother and my father shaped me forever. And I wish, but it's only in retrospect, you can't be perfect. I wish I had understood how it was shaping me and I wish I had been proactive in the shaping. Right? I wish I had figured out a way to love my parents better so I could love them more deeply and allow the love, the self-giving love that I would give to them to shape my character because it does. What I want to tell you is that when you get married, you marry a family. And it's not just because you have in-laws um, that you have to go see periodically. Sometimes that's awful, other times it's great. But the reason you marry a family is because that person, whoever it is, has been shaped by that family. And so everything about their relationship in that family has done something to affect your marriage. And everything about your relationship in your family will do something to affect your marriage. So especially at this age of your life, think about that. Address it. You know you're your worst when you go home, right? That's always true. That's when the worst comes out of you. That's why you just can't wait to get home at spring break. You can't wait to get back halfway through, right? Or Christmas break or whatever it is. Why? Because they're annoying the life out of you. And they're clinging to you. They're doing whatever it is that bothers you so much. But you have an opportunity, I promise you, that I think you're not seeing to walk into that relationship and learn how to accept them in ways you've never accepted them before. To learn how to love them in ways that you haven't loved them before. To learn how to be honest with them in ways that you haven't ever been honest with them before. There's opportunities, I'm telling you guys, there's opportunities for you to be shaped and reshaped in new ways by your family right now. Because it will affect your marriage. It will. Uh, the second way in which you're prepared for the relationship of marriage is through friends. Um, your roommate's really important, whoever that is, right? Um, and really annoying, or maybe not so much. I, um, I just love uh, watching, especially my daughter grow up, uh, because she everything was on her shirt sleeves. I mean, every emotion. She didn't hide anything. The girl doesn't know how to hide emotions. She just puts it out there. She also doesn't know how to keep her mouth shut. She says things all the time. <laughs> My son was the exact opposite. But I love watching her grow up because I knew exactly what she was thinking. I didn't like what she was thinking a lot of times, but I knew what she was thinking. And I used to watch her. She went to IU. And every single year, the girl moved. I mean, she didn't live at home. We didn't want her to live at home. Cry out loud. 
Get out of the house. We've had enough of you. You've had enough of us. But she moved every single year to one apartment, then another apartment, always a new set of friends, always new roommates, and always they were the nicest people and it was going to be the greatest thing when she signed the lease. And by the time it was all over, she hated them. I mean, maybe not that severe, but you know what I'm talking about, right? It looks like it's going to work. It looks like the relationship's going to be good. You signed up with this roommate. Well, maybe because you didn't have any other options, but maybe because you really liked the person. You thought you were a good match, and probably you were a good match because they were opposite your personality. And that oppositeness in personality drives you crazy and shapes you, and it prepares you for marriage. Um, I, I just noticed the other day on TV that there, there's a, a remake of The Odd Couple. Have you seen that advertised? Do you guys even watch TV anymore? Or, yeah. Yeah, The Odd Couple was what I grew up with. It was Felix and Oscar, and, and they were hilarious. But now they got a new version of The Odd Couple. You know what's funny about the title, The Odd Couple? There's nothing odd about it. That's what couples are like. They're odd. They're different. One's a slob, and one's absolute perfectionist. One's dirty, and one's clean. One's... Draw your contrast. That's what couples are. And that's why you're attracted to the other. There's this intuitive homing signal in your heart to be drawn towards the other that's a little different than you. Oh, you have things in common or else you wouldn't get along. But they're different than you. And you know they're different than you. And there's some delight in their difference. And then their difference annoys the heck out of you. And if you allow it to, it'll shape you. So preparation for marriage in these relationships with your roommate and your friends, what do you need to practice? Well, you need to practice the virtues that we hear in the scripture called the fruit of the spirit. You need to practice things like patience. You need to practice things like kindness. Things like honesty. Things like generosity. Mercy. Forgiveness. The list that was read by Grace just a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians. Not being proud and self-seeking. Not being overly angry all the time. Not being jealous of the other. All those things are practiced in relationship and they're preparing you for marriage. Because when you get to marriage, it's going to be the same thing. It's a repeat, but only better. Because you're attracted to an opposite. And the things that you once delighted in are going to annoy you. They're going to drive you crazy. Um, my wife is so much my opposite, I, sometimes I don't even know who she is. I mean, she's just completely opposite. She's so well organized. And everything's perfect. She's so disciplined. And I am so freelance and big picture and undisciplined and unorganized compared to her. And I promise you that the only reason I have had any success professionally is because I've allowed her to shape me. I haven't just relied on her as my alter ego. You take care of the things I don't do. I've allowed her to shape me. I could not have been here for 17 years. 17 and a half now. If it hadn't been for the ways in which my wife has shaped me, and changed me.
because I've allowed her to. And um, I don't think she'd be near as good without me either. But you'd have to ask her if she thinks that's true. I don't know. The, the final thing I want to say about um, marriage is not preparation for marriage, it's roles in marriage. Um, opposites do attract, we know that, right? And because opposites attract, you're going to be different in different ways, you're going to be gifted in different ways, and, and much of the oppositeness of your character is the way in which you're going to allow your relationship to be shaped in terms of roles. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the organized one is probably the one who's going to take care of the money. But not necessarily. But the one who's best in it ought to. Before I say something about that, let me say something about this. You know, stereotypes are annoying, but a lot of times they're true. They are. Sometimes they're used against other people. They're used to put people in their place and all that kind of stuff. But stereotypes sometimes are just true. And in your world, unlike the world I grew up in in the 60s and the 70s, although it was changing then, um, in your world, uh, I think people want to pretend like differences between gender don't exist. I mean, at the, at the level that they do exist. Uh, we want to try to neutralize or make everybody the same. And we're not the same. We're just not. And if you don't get that and own it and embrace it, you'll never be able to pursue the other. Nor will you ever be able to understand the other. Nor will you ever be able to love the other the way you're supposed to. You are different, guys. Really different. Own it. Um, you know, we could talk about stereotypes. The guys are typically the tough ones. Well, really? In a way, yeah. Sort of. The women are the tender, nurturing ones. Really, all the time? Well, sometimes I think my wife nurtured my kids very well, and she's mad at them, but... Wait a minute. She is. I mean, let's get real crude about it. She had an umbilical cord and she's got breasts, and I don't. We're different. There's a way in which she relates to my children as mother that I do not relate to my children as father. We're just different. Thank God for the difference. Um, sometimes, again, it's a stereotype. Um, women are more because of their nurturing nature, even more attached to the children. And men have a tendency to be more detached. Now you might say to yourself, oh wait, that's a stereotype. But maybe it is. Maybe it is. But there's a lot to it that's true. Fathers, uh, for the most part, just tend to be the more detached ones. And mothers seem to be the more involved, close, nurturing ones. I know it's not perfectly true, but my suggestion is don't dismiss the stereotypes that your society has said are no longer true. There's a lot of truth in some of those that you need to remember. I'll give you one that's a stereotype that 
Okay, this is for the guys. This better not be true. It better not, I should say, it better not not be true. It better be true that this stereotype is true. Well, that sense? No, everybody's confused. This stereotype is not only true, it's right. Okay? And here it is. I've got a lot of roles in my marriage. My wife's got a lot of roles in our marriage. But when I hear something downstairs that sounds like an intruder, I don't send my wife down to check it out. Do I make my point clear? I don't care what your roles are. You darn well better be the protector. Because you're made for that. That's your job, guys. And don't let anybody rob you of that. You're supposed to be that for your family. That's a stereotype that's true. And I think one that's right. Now, here's some other ones. Who's the cook in the family? Who gives a care? Whoever does it best, right? Um, who does the finances? Whichever one's good at it. Or both do them. Have separate budgets. That's not a sin there. If somebody look at me with a blank face, like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. We get separate budgets. You gotta make decisions like that. And they're not all the same. Um, who's the one who is the person who attracts everybody to the family and is a gregarious one? Well, it's based on your personality. Who's the organized one? The one who's organized. Who keeps the house running? The one who keeps the house running. Those are foolish stereotypes that are just malleable. They move around. But um, besides the protector one, here's one. I'll say it up front. I'm old school. That I think is biblical. And I'm speaking to the guys now. I believe God calls you to be the leader of your home. Now you have to define leadership in a different kind of way. You have to define leadership based on the servant leadership of Jesus. You have to define leadership uh, as Ephesians 4.21 defines it. That you're supposed to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You have to own leadership, the spiritual leadership of your family, and owning that means that you are the chief servant, the chief lover, the chief forgiver, the chief dispenser of mercy. That's what leadership means. You're supposed to be out ahead of your wife on all those things. Not in a competitive way, but in a Jesus way. You're called to lead your own. That's your role. And by the way, you can't possibly be a servant leader without submitting to your wife. Now you say, well, submission and leadership don't go together. Oh, yes, they do. If I lead like a, lead like a servant, you know what I'm doing? I'm putting whoever is in front of me, behind me that I'm leading, I'm putting their interests before mine. I'm submitting to their greatest good, not my own. I think God calls you guys to be the leaders 
of your home. To be that kind of servant leader. Doesn't mean you make all the decisions. Matter of fact, I can't even remember the last decision I made by myself. My wife and I make decisions together. We don't even think about it. We're so united and one that we hardly think about who's making a decision. But on one occasion, yeah, I'll never forget this. On one occasion, my wife and I were having an argument of some sort. And it had to do with an issue. I don't even remember what the issue was. And she finally looked at me and pointed her finger and she said, You're the leader of this home and everybody in this home knows it. Now be the leader. She was right. I don't remember what it was, but I'll never forget the point. The point, though, was that the kids know who's leading the family didn't do it. I think that the Bible calls us to that kind of leadership. Um, and if I'm right, it's your God-honoring role to be that. So as you uh, move towards marriage, remember what the Bible says concerning your leadership in the home. Last thing I want to mention is this. Uh, when, when God did his best to communicate to finite minds like ours what the nature of true love was, he used the image of marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb. He used a bride and a groom when he talked about how he loved the church. He called us the bride of Christ because there seems to be no higher order of relationships than between a man and a woman who are completely devoted to one another under the umbrella of reverence for Christ. And when you mutually submit to one another that way and follow God together, you're demonstrating more than you ever could on your own Jesus Christ to the world. So some of you are going to be called to that for life. Others of you might not be, but it's the greatest honor you'll ever have because it's a gift of God. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, marriage and uh, for all that it means, um, for all that you used it uh, to teach us, because um, you taught us a lot about yourself, by your love for the church, by using uh, the image of marriage. Thank you for divine love. Um, we could just uh, sort of bump along in our human existence and try to define love ourselves, and it would be pretty pathetic and pretty shallow and empty, but... He gave us an illustration of divine love, not just with words, but words that were backed up by the life of Jesus Christ. So when we read words like 1 Corinthians 13 about what the nature of love is, help us not to forget that the nature of love is instantiated in one person, Jesus Christ. And when we lead in our homes and, and raise our children, and minister to our world. Help us to remember the model of love, which is Jesus Christ. And the more we remember it, we pray the more we will be it. And the more that we are it, the more our world will change because of your love and not because of us. And we'll thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.